Welcome to the NC4 Podcast. We exist to know Christ and make Him known. Discover the power of a connected life by listening to this message from God's Word. I don't know if I could really say that Palm Sunday is a celebration day per se. To an extent it is that because it fulfills prophecy. It's a, a long last Messiah has actually come. All those years of the apprehension of God from Abraham through the whole trek in Egypt and all of the kings and all of the prophecies, Jesus is coming into Jerusalem, entering Jerusalem for the Feast of Passover. And they lay palm leaves, and you know this, they lay their garments and they're hollering Hosanna. But within a week, those who are hollering Hosanna and welcoming their king are hollering crucify him, which is really amazing. When religious people become religiously disappointed, politically disappointed, when religious people do that, it really can become difficult to distinguish the hugs from the thugs, yeah, or the saints from the sinners. But this morning, I want to focus, this is really interesting, I want to focus on a central facet of the crucifixion that we sing about and we talk about all the time. We don't theologize about it, but we're always mentioning it. It has to do with the blood of Jesus. Uh, I, I question how many of us really understand and that, you know, about that. Uh, and it became apparent to me two weeks ago when I mentioned in my message that if the temple were to be rebuilt in Jerusalem, which is the hope, at least of the Orthodox and conservative Jews, if the temple were to be rebuilt, I mentioned, I said, I hope that I wonder about it because I would not like to see the reinstitution or the re-inauguration of animal sacrifice. And I'll tell you why in just a second. But see, for us as evangelicals, when we celebrate or think about the rebuilding of the temple, most of us have in mind a monument, right? like the Washington Monument or the Lincoln Memorial or something to memorialize the return of the Jews to Israel from the diaspora after 2,000 years, which is certainly something to make monumental. But that's not what's being hoped for. What's being hoped for is for the reestablishment of a priesthood and the reinitiation of the slaughter of animals for sin. That seemed to strike a chord in people. What was curious to me was the number of questions I received in texts and emails about this issue of the shedding of blood. And it occurred to me, you know, in all these years that I've been doing messages, I never said anything or did a message about blood sacrifice, per se. You know, we always say that it's, oh, the blood of Jesus, it washes all my sins, and that's true, and it's wonderful. But why is it wonderful and why was it necessary? People, when I talked about, when I talked about bulls and goats and pigeons and, 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 and sheep and lambs and all those things spilling blood for sin, it occurred to people, oh my gosh, that was normative for millennia, you know? And I realized that in the scriptures, Leviticus 17, it says that the life of flesh is in the blood. And there's, so there's a reason for the shedding of blood. But why, I was questioned, did God want all those animals to be sacrificed? And why did Jesus, Jesus himself, 
in dying for us, have to shed blood in love for us. Isn't that interesting? There are other ways to die, all right? And maybe it's because we live in an age of PETA, and in the West, we tend to treat our pets as people. And by the way, I'm not taking a shot at people who love their pets. Go love your pets. When I drove home, the reality that if the temple were to be rebuilt, it would not be a monument. It would be functional, yeah? And, uh, and the picture of all the bulls and lambs and pigeons and doves and goats being sacrificial, sacrificially slaughtered on a daily basis puts some people's minds ill at ease. I found that fascinating. Huh? You know, look, if you're not a farmer or, or maybe a hunter, and I was never a farmer, but I was a hunter, if you're not those kinds of people, then the whole issue of the spilling of blood, you know, escapes us in the 21st century. In other words, we go to Costco and get our chicken legs and forget that that chicken had to die, yeah? And I'm just stating a fact, right? That's why some people become vegans, because that makes them squeamish. So there's that issue. And so I remember when I was a kid, like I would get up to go to church because at around nine o'clock when my family would go to church, my, but my grandmother and my aunts, we prepare this, they'd prepare this big dinner. All the family would come together from every facet of where Grobleskis lived. And that was every Sunday. And they get up. Uh, I'd be coming out to go to church, and they were walking out to the chicken coop. My grandmother and my aunts could kill a chicken, pluck it, and you know, have it slaughtered without thinking about it. It would take as much attention as it would to brush their hair, because they did it since they were little kids. Are you there? So in that culture, the whole issue of Holy Week and blood sacrifice and stuff, I mean, it drove home something, but we've been kind of uh, inoculated from those experiences, yeah? This isn't a value judgment, a moral judgment, but there's a centrality to the fact that Jesus knew in his love for us that his blood would have to hit the Judean soil in order for our sins to be washed away. I don't know that I've ever said that from the pulpit, but some of your questions incited that that thought in me because it's so central as we consider the relationship between Judaism and Christianity. You know, I want for us to understand the sacrificial death of Jesus and so to do that, I want us to turn to a book written by a Jew for Christians and Jews, and it's the book of Hebrews. And the understanding of all this is laid out by the author of the book of Hebrews. So my, my first point, by the way, the name of this message is a finale of blood and sacrifice. And so my first point is that the need for a real blood sacrifice is central to all of our realizing what actually happened on the first Good Friday. And it's why we commemorate Good Friday. So, if you'll uh, turn with me to the book of Hebrews, chapter 10, we don't know who he or she is. But we do know that the writer of Hebrews is writing to Messianic Jews and Christians and is probably in Alexandria, and is thoroughly familiar with the Hebrew sacrificial system. What was going on in the temple, why it was going on, because he was a Hebrew, or she was a Hebrew. So the description of blood sacrifice is, in fact, Jesus' own understanding 
of what he was willing to do out of love for us, which is why he turned to his disciples at the Last Supper and took the cup and said, this cup is the cup of my blood and the blood, the blood of a new and an everlasting covenant. So I want to read this perspective beginning in Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 1. And I'll do a little bit of running commentary. Now this is a, for, for a good, uh, for a Palm Sunday, this is a little bit of a teachy message, uh, more than a preachy message. But uh, uh, I think it's really important as we go into Holy Week. I feel the anointing of God on the importance of us understanding this. So we're going to begin in the book of Hebrews, chapter 10, verse 1. And so the the writer says this, For since the law, that's the Hebrew Torah, which lays out all the stuff of, of, of sacrifice, the whole sacrificial system. He says, for since the law uh, has, has but a shadow, the law is a shadow of the good things to come. Literally, it reads, of the good things in the age that is coming. That's where we're living right now. Instead of the true form of these realities, the, the, the writer is saying, look, you know, it's, you know how like a, a shadow can give you a shape of something, but it doesn't give you the reality of the thing. Are you there? And so, so that's what he's saying here. The, the Torah can give you the shape of something. It can suggest something, but it ain't going to give you the reality of what God is after here. He says, so since the law has but a shadow of the things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually, continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. This means those who draw near in worship. Verse 2, otherwise they would, not ha- they, would, they would not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having been cleansed, would no longer have a consciousness of sin. In other words, what he's saying is a central facet of worship was this animal sacrifice, but the sacrifices never deal with the actual problem of sin itself. All they do is they make a relationship with God possible. Huh? Isn't that interesting? So, verse 3 But in these sacrifices, there's a a reminder of sins. It's a reminder of sins. Every year, he's talking about Passover there. For, and this is huge, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins, which is why I'm not, what's the word, enamored about the idea of the temple sacrificial system being reinstituted. Are you there? So, anyway, It's impossible, verse 4, for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Verse 5, consequently, now this is, if you can pay attention here, this is freaky neat. It's really, really good. He says, consequently, when Christ came into the world, now he's talking about when Jesus is becoming incarnate, right? When Christ, when the Messiah comes into the world. He's talking about when Jesus becomes incarnate. This is what the author of Hebrews said. He said, that's Jesus. When Christ came into the world, he said, this is what he said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired. He said, speaking to the Father, but a body, a body you have prepared for me. Verse 6, in burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure, right? In verse 7, 
Then I said, this is Jesus speaking, Behold, he's speaking to the Father, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written in the scroll of the books. Wow. Now, verses 5, 6, and 7, watch this, are an exact quotation from Psalm 40, verses 6 through 8. But here, watch this, the writer of Hebrews makes two really amazing changes from what's written in the book of Psalms. In the book of Psalms, David is the one who's doing the speaking. Here, it's Jesus is the one who's doing the speaking. Okay, and so where, whereas in Psalms, it is David speaking, and in Psalms, you can check this out later, David says to God, you have prepared an ear for me in these, these offerings and these sacrifices. In other words, David is saying, you, you have prepared an ear for me. I am able to hear you. I'm able to have relationship with you. Uh, David is saying that, God, you've allowed me to hear. But in the book of Hebrews, it's Jesus who's speaking, and Jesus says, you have prepared for me a body. Huh? A body. And, and we have to ask, well, why? Jesus is saying that as God, he was given by the Father a body. Why? In order that he could be sacrificed in a manner to end all sacrifice. And the word for preparation is a liturgical word. You know, pr- there's all this stuff in Leviticus about how sacrifices should be prepared before they're sacrificed. Jesus is saying, Father, you're preparing me with a body to be sacrificed. Wow. So Jesus says, uh, G- Jesus says, that's what you've done. Now, Jesus' incarnate body, this is what this means. From his conception is a prepared sacrifice. That means the infant gestating in the womb of Mary after her conception of him by the Holy Spirit was a prepared sacrifice destined to actually happen. I mean, that's, it's immense. It's immense in the thought of it. It's, oh my goodness. So this is why when John the Baptist at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, uh, saw Jesus coming in, in John 1, 29. He says, look, he says to his disciples, look, it's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, where John got that revelation, whether it was from Elizabeth or Mary, I, you know, that was way ahead. See, when I was in seminary, there were all these articles and stuff that Jesus you know, slowly became aware of his messiahship and his godhood, and he slowly became aware that he would have to die, and he was working with this, and it suddenly occurred to him. You know, it was a process. But here it says, no, 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 that Jesus knew he came to love us from the beginning, right, right from the moment of conception, and to die for us. I mean, yikes. Yikes. All right. So, so John the Baptist, how he came to that revelation is beyond me. But I want to pick up reading again in verse 8. And when he, that's Jesus, said, watch this, said where? Above. This is before he was becoming incarnate. You have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. He's speaking to the Father. And these are offers offered according to the law. Verse 9, it says, Then he, Jesus added, behold, look, Father, I've come to do your will. Wow. So Jesus does not, uh, 
Jesus does away, and that word means abolished completely, with the first in order to establish the second. All right? And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. You notice the word says sanctified? See, what that means, we are being sanctified. See, he, he came as a perfect offering so that we could, be, we could be being sanctified. That means us becoming holier and holier and holier goes on forever. How cool is that? I mean, I mean this, is really, this is a lot of theology that people miss when we go into Holy Week because it's by the shedding of blood. And then verse 11, he says, look, Oh, I love it. By the way, I want to go back to verse 9. Where's 10? 10. And, and by that, we all have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ. But watch this. Once, 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 and for all. Wow. Oh, thank you, Lord. Hallelujah. Man, thank you, Lord. All right. Once and for all. And every priest, verse 11, every priest stands daily, stands. Everybody say stands. Stands, this is important. Daily, every day, as his service offering repeatedly the same sacrifice day after day after day that can never take away sins. See, if you're a Jewish priest, your work is never done. Huh? And verse 12, but when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, a single, he sat down, everybody say sat, the priests stand, Jesus sits at the right hand of God. Verse 13, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. And we'll conclude with that thought. Verse 13, uh, verse 14, for a single offering, a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are in the process of being sanctified. That's us. And notice that our perfection's complete because his perfection's complete, but our sanctification is not. It's something we live through by worshiping and living and all that kind of good stuff. All right. I'm going to go down to verse 17. And then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. So look, for those of you who are walking around with all kinds of guilt and all kinds of condemnation and all kinds of, you know, the devil's going doing this in your ear all the time saying, you're that kind of person. That's who you are. You, that's who you are. You're never going to be like that. You just have to die and, and go to heaven, but you're going to be this way forever. That's a lie. Huh? He, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more because of this blood sacrifice. And where there is forgiveness of these, there needs be no longer any offering. Huh? I mean, it's so huge. And this is the most excellent news that takes us into Holy Week because uh, uh, it's a real week. And all, all of this happened in space and time. I, I dwell upon that sometimes. His blood really was shed. It fell into the Judean soil. And when it did, and the blood flowed out of him and, and healed the Roman centurion, and, the, and all of that happened, it changed me. It made me capable of being a new person. Huh? 
I mean, it changed me in space and time. So most of us realize that God in providing... Now, okay, maybe we'll do it this way. Most uh, It still doesn't answer the question, why the spilling of blood? Why couldn't it have been some other means of death? All right. Most of you realize that God, in providing animal skins to hide the nakedness of Adam and Eve after they sinned, covered their guilt and sin through the killing of an animal. It was the first animal sacrifice. You can go to Genesis 3.21 and look at that. Because fig leaves could never hide their nakedness. How many of you know fig leaves can't do the trick? I've tried that. Anyway, when I was a hippie. All right. So, <laughs> okay. So here's, here's my point. Virtually every human culture, watch this. This is fascinating. Virtually every human culture at some time observes or observed blood sacrifice. The notion that the human predicament of guilt, every human, human being of guilt and suffering, life, death, the supernatural, th those notions have, from the most ancient times, been addressed, how? By the spilling of blood, in some way. And it's almost innate, it's like the sexual drive, it's almost innate within us to think about the fact that something has to take place for us to get rid of this guilt and this persistent condemnation that seems to inhabit every human being. Are you there? And so, so animistic religions all practice blood sacrifice. Hinduism, which is the parent faith of Buddhism, for all of its practice of making gods of humans and, and having vegetarians and all that, nevertheless, practiced animal sacrifice during the Vedic period, and in some areas still practice animal sacrifice. I can give you pictures of Hindus sacrificing goats, but making uh, elephants and, and monkeys gods. Even the Taoists still in some places sacrifice animals. Buddhists in, in Nepal sacrifice animals. Muslims make sacrifices on special feasts by spilling the blood of animals. Samaritans still in Israel make animal sacrifice according to the Torah. Indigenous peoples in the Americas, indigenous peoples in Africa, a practiced and still practiced animal sacrifice, and in the past practiced human sacrifice. Most of us know Brother Julius, who's, who's um, um, a uh, albino, and in, in his culture, albinos were considered a curse by one of the gods, and, and centuries ago, he would have been sacrificed consequent to being an albino. These, these are interesting things. Where's this instinct coming from? The Romans practiced animal sacrifice. The Greeks pra pra practiced animal sacrifice. The Vikings practiced animal sacrifice. So what, we can ask, is actually driving that instinct, yeah? I mean, it's a, I think it's a great anthropological question. So when we could spend like whole days taking that apart and applying it to the death of Jesus. But what I want to say is this, and it's my uh, third point or something like that. Blood sacrifice always involves the death of a victim for the maintenance of a relationship between man who does the sacrifice and whoever the sacrifice is made to. All right? Think about that. Blood sacrifice involves the death of a victim for the maintenance of a relationship between the man who does the sacrifice and whoever the sacrifice is made to.
So God placed in every human psyche some sense, watch of this, that the wages of sin is death. Every conscience kind of knows that sin begets death. That's Romans 6.23. Huh? As a matter of fact, I, I kind of use this reflectively when my fantasy life goes blah. In other words, if I'm feeling, if I'm fantasizing or, or thinking through a greed or anger or lust, and usually those, that, that ideation is accompanied by you doing something that you probably shouldn't do, are you there? Because it's hu you know, human nature to process that way. I always take it one step further and said, if what I want to happen to that, to that person happens, what would it mean? What would, be the, what would be the result of it? And I always come to the death of it. Uh, am I making sense here? You know, if, if you're fantasizing about adultery, if you commit that adultery, it will be disastrous. But you don't think about that when you're fantasizing about adultery. Or if you're fantasizing about greed and you pursue the love of money for greed and, and, and you accomplish it somehow, you, you need to understand that it could be disastrous. I, I mean, the wages of sin is death. That's what Paul says, all right? Okay, so, so sacrifice is a picture of the truth that sin creates victims. Did you know that? Have you noticed that in your life? Sin creates victims. Sometimes we victimize ourselves through sin. Blood spilled stands for death. It also stands for judgment. Often, you know, the victim of the sacrifices of substitution for the person or the people doing the sacrifices. And the animal, the, the thinking is this, that animal's going to die so I don't have to. Huh? And, and so... Uh, at, at least for the time being. So there's even a sense of redemption in these animistic religions. Now, over all time, this suddenly becomes culturally in, ingrained across the world. And what God did then through Moses is this. He sanctified the human instinct to sacrifice and he uses it to create a people. And then God made relationship with his people possible through blood sacrifice. Leviticus 17. Now, there are several covenants in the Bible. I'm racing ahead here. Uh, but five of the covenants are crucial for our understanding, our understanding God's redemptive plan. There's the Noahic covenant, Noah, Abrahamic covenant, Abraham, Mosaic covenant, Moses, people of Israel, Davidic covenant, uh, uh, David, and then there's the new covenant. Now watch this. All five covenants require blood to be spilled. Amazing. What does that mean? From the earliest times, God has insisted on blood sacrifice as the ground upon which he was to be approached. Huh? I always say when I do teachings on Seder, Passover, you know, the lamb has to be killed. But watch this. It's no Passover if the lamb's not consumed. The lamb has to be killed, but it's no Passover if the lamb's not consumed. As you eat this bread and drink this cup, huh? you know. So there's no such thing as a vegan Passover. <laughs> and I'm not taking a shot at vegans. Be a vegan. I'm just telling you, if you want to do a Seder, 
you can't do it with kale. <laughs> you know. <laughs> All right. <laughs> I'm so sorry. Anyway. So the new covenant requires a sacrifice as well. Verse 14 tells us, for by a single offering, God has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. But in order to perfectly address our sin for all time, the sacrifice needs to be perfect. So at long last, Jesus is our sacrifice. He is our substitution. He is our victim. He is our priest. It is his shed blood that is not only the grounds of relationship with him and the Father, it is his shed blood that perfectly addresses the crisis of our sin, all the crises of our life, all that's addressed because he shed his blood as both victim and priest on our behalf. Hallelujah and Hosanna. Amen. So it's his shed blood that tees us up at long last for resurrection, at long last for death's defeat, at long last each of us becomes a new creation. And the effects of Jesus' blood are so encompassing that we could go on and on and on for months of Sundays and talk about the blood of Jesus. I used to wonder when I would read the Moravian diaries from the 18th century here in Bethlehem. They would talk about having services right a couple blocks from here. And the diaries would read this way. The service was powerful. It was fantastic. It was so bloody. That's what they'd say. And what they were saying was the realization of the cost of the sacrifice of Jesus on our behalf was replete and present and inescapable, such that even the Indians, the Native Americans who were in the service, would, 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 couldn't withstand it. Okay. All right. So I want to really close this up quick. There's one area of this that I promised I'd close with, and I know it's, I know it's late, but just one, one area, and it'll be real quick. In closing, I just want to mention one effect of this that we ignore, and not so much theologically, but practically. We didn't ignore it this morning, okay? In verses 11 and 12, look at the difference between our priests and the Jewish priests. The Jewish, Jewish priests stand and stand and stand and stand and stand and shed the blood, shed the blood and, and that, that, that doesn't take away sin. So for Jewish priests, their work never ends because sin never ends. But our priests, our priest and our victim, Jesus, sacrifices once and he sits down on the throne of the Father and he says, okay, I'm sitting down they can stand. I'm sitting down. It's time for you guys to go to work because I need every enemy to be cast under my feet. When that comes, I'll come. So, hallelujah. So we have, if you will, this is a nasty word in, uh, in, in reformed circles, we have work to do. That's what James says. This is where we get to cooperate with him. Because his blood was shed on our behalf, we have a position with him on his throne. And at long last, we participate and cooperate in the fulfillment of his kingdom. 
So this morning we can stand there and say, in the name of Jesus, I take authority over pain. In the name of Jesus, I take authority over strain. In the name of Jesus, I take authority over lame. In the name of Jesus, I, I take authority over anything else bad that ends with ain. <laughs> but it's real. It's real. I'm expecting consequent to his being on the throne and sacrificing. I'm expecting testimonies. Somebody gonna gotta come up here next week and say, hey, I prayed that prayer. We said in the name of Jesus and something happened this week, right? Amen, that's called faith, which is because of his blood sacrifice. Okay, look, if you've never drawn close to the shed blood of Jesus, you can just do it right now by telling Jesus, saying, look, I know my life is incomplete without you. I, I'm incapable of addressing the wrong I do. I'm sorry, and I invite you into my heart, Jesus. He's here right now. He's, if you're online, he's breathing down your neck. And while we're singing, we just can ask him into your heart. It'll change your life. And then let somebody know that you did so that we can talk to you. Thank you for listening to the NC4 Podcast. For more info, visit our website at nc4.org. We believe in the power of a connected life. If you prayed to give your life to Jesus today, we'd love to help you walk it out together. Just text the word Jesus to 610-816-6062.